Hi, welcome to Lambert Park Church. Our vision is life with God for the world. Our mission is to invite everyone to follow Jesus with us through redemptive community, intentional discipleship, and everyday mission. We're so glad you're here. Stay tuned for the podcast coming right up. Again, everybody, really warm welcome to you, wherever you are today, um, here in the room, at home, wherever you are emotionally, wherever you are physically. I'm so glad that you were here this morning and to be sharing my first ever sermon with you. Um, Like Aaron said, if we haven't met yet, my name is Lucy and I am part of the staff team here. Um, And if you are struggling to place my interesting accent, I'm from the UK originally. Um, I am married to Luke, um, who's sitting at the back, and um, we have a little pet hedgehog named Sebastian, with whom we are both very obsessed. (laughs) Here she is. Yes, she's a girl named Sebastian. Um, Now, if you are joining us for the first time ever or in a while this morning, we're currently in a teaching series on the fruit of the Spirit, um, which is um, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And that comes from a verse in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. And this morning, I'm going to be exploring gentleness with you. Now, I have to be honest and say that um, prior to prepping for this talk, gentleness was not either the most interesting or the most attainable characteristic for me. Um, I think of gentle and I think of unscented fabric softener for sensitive skin and pastel shades and that cordy whale music that they play in the gift shop at the spa. Now, I am a person who once accidentally took a bite out of a friend's crystal wine glass because I was bored and I wanted to challenge myself to switch hands whilst I was drinking. And it didn't go very well. Um, And not too long ago, I dropped my aforementioned hedgehog in my aforementioned husband's eye. And I once lost the service information for my car and in looking for it, I did this to my bedroom. So it seems for a bit, like a bit of a reach for me to get from there to pastel shades and cordy whale music. And I don't think that I'm alone in this. Jerry Bridges quotes in The Practice of Godliness, perhaps no grace is less prayed for or less cultivated than gentleness. Indeed, it is considered rather as belonging to natural disposition or external manners than as a Christian virtue. And seldom do we reflect that not to be gentle is sin. But as Daniel taught us last week, the fruit of the Spirit isn't a fruit cocktail where we can pick out the love strawberry and leave the gentleness cantaloupe. Instead, Paul's list describes many facets of the same fruit that the Holy Spirit grows in us as we seek God's kingdom and try to follow Jesus. And moreover, gentle is the only word that Jesus uses to describe his own heart. In Matthew 11, Um, verse 29, he says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Sorry for the wrestling, I'm regretting the double-sided printing. Um, 
Jesus is gentle and humble in heart. And don't we want to be more like him? Let's pray for a sec. Our gentle Father, Saviour, Redeemer, we do want to learn from you. Lord, help us to take off those other yokes we bear and follow you alone. Holy Spirit, work amongst us today. Let us hear your voice and walk in your ways. Help us to be more gentle, more like you. Amen. Okay, so now that we have moved past the gentleness of fabric softener, how can we define gentleness? Some synonyms for gentleness that might spring to mind are tenderness, kindness, politeness or respect, maintaining calm in the chaos. A Google image search shows lots of pictures of hands holding baby birds, which to me is an illustration of a powerful one being a trustworthy and safe place for the other to rest. One kids' ministry sock puppet that I found on YouTube explained that gentleness is our response when we see someone or something as both valuable and vulnerable. So, for instance, we don't need to be gentle with cotton candy because it isn't really valuable. However, we are gentle with our grandmother's best china set, and we don't take bites out of it, Lucy. <laughs> because we acknowledge its value and our power to break it. A good way to think about gentleness is power under control. There's a popular illustration of a guide showing a group of visitors through a factory, and one of the things that he shows them is a giant steam hammer capable of flattening a car. Apparently, this is a steam hammer. <laughs> um, didn't know that. Then the guide put down a walnut and had the hammer break the shell without hurting the meat of the nut. So power under control. The strong hand not hurting the bird, the child not breaking the china, the hammer not smashing the walnut. I remember when I was about six years old, my granddad tickling me to the point that I couldn't breathe because I was laughing so hard. Stop, I yelled, I don't like that. And for the first time, with any adult, that actually worked. He stopped and he said, okay, I will never tickle you again unless you ask me to. And at the time, to be honest, I was a bit freaked out. I was not used to my six-year-old words having the authority to forever change the behavior of an adult. But looking back, my granddad was such an example of gentleness in that moment. He absolutely didn't have to respect my wishes. I wasn't even expecting him to, but he did. He controlled the power that he had to override my wishes if he wanted to. Power under control. So if you have your Bibles with, with you, will you turn with me to John chapter 18? Um, to provide some context, many of us will be quite familiar with Peter the disciple, as Scott and Daniel did a teaching series on him and on his first letter earlier in the year. But if you are meeting Peter for the first time today, he was one of Jesus's closest followers and friends. He wasn't afraid to ask Jesus silly questions. He wasn't afraid to say when he didn't understand, and he, did, he wasn't afraid to risk looking a little bit 
silly. <laughs> I have heard him described as the disciple who couldn't open his mouth without putting his foot in it. And for this, I admire him because I can relate. In the passage we're about to read, Jesus and his disciples are in Jerusalem and they've just shared the Passover meal together. And Jesus is praying because he knows that he is about to be arrested and put to death. So let's read together. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was a garden and he and his disciples went to it. Now, Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, what, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And Judas the traitor was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again, he asked them, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. And then... Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jewish leaders that it would be good if one man died for the people. So fun fact, this story appears in all four Gospels, but only John names Peter as the ear-chopping culprit. What a good friend, eh? <laughs> now, it's safe to say in this moment, Peter's actions are not gentle, are they? The book that Scott assigned us as a teaching team to guide this series offers this definition of gentleness. Gentleness is the ability to endure hostility and criticism without aggression. Gentleness means being very aware that the other person is a human being with feelings too. The idea that a saviour might not be a superhero cape wearer, but a foot-washing cross-bearer, was so countercultural that even Jesus' closest friends struggled to grasp it. And Peter forgot in that moment that Malchus was also a person precious to God. In Peter's mind, the end of rescuing Jesus justified the means of hurting another. And this is not the way of gentleness. So what do we think is Peter's biggest barrier to gentleness here? I suggest that what is happening is Peter is experiencing a fight response to fear. And if you think about it, fear is such a barrier to gentleness, isn't it? When we got our hedgehog, Lots of people asked us if it hurt to handle her. The answer is it doesn't because she's not afraid of us. 
Because she trusts us that we won't hurt her, she uncurls from her prickly ball, folds down her spikes, and turns into the little snuggle bug that you can see there. And if we're especially lucky, she lets us rub her tummy. Now, I consider myself to be quite a lover of animals. A few weeks ago, we had a large fly buzzing around the office here, and it landed in my cup of tea. And I took my tea to the sink, and as you know, for a British person, this is a big sacrifice, I poured the tea out so that the fly had a chance of not drowning. However, there is a creature that I cannot stand, and that is the ant. Ever since a childhood bedside cotton candy open ground floor window ant invasion incident, I have hated them. I even only put one on the slide because I couldn't cope with more. <laughs> um, we, we live in an oldish wooden building, and earlier this year we had a little carpenter ant infestation, and when those little scumbags trespassed into my house, all of my gentleness was thrown out of the window. I called the exterminator and asked him to bring extra sticky traps, extra poison, and his best smushing boots. Because I am afraid of them, I can't be gentle towards them. Peter, in this moment, is afraid, probably for his own safety, for the safety of his rabbi, and, the hope, and that the hope that he has put in Jesus to bring about change is about to die. Despite all the miracles he has seen Jesus perform, he has seen Jesus walk on water, calm a storm, feed 5,000 people from one kid's pat lunch, raise people from the dead, heal the sick over and over and over again. He cannot fathom that Jesus might be allowing himself to be arrested, showing a perfect example of power under control. Peter feels that he needs to jump to Jesus' defense and does not care what methods he uses to get there. Perhaps there are some of us here today who are feeling a little bit challenged by this. Perhaps, if we're honest, we have a predisposition to lash out when things aren't going our way, through violence physically, verbally, or through manipulation. Perhaps even what began as an enthusiasm for the advancement of God's kingdom has turned to fear that we aren't seeing tangible results. And so we coerce, we manipulate, or even threaten others because we think that the means are justified. Now, if that is you today, God says, I love you. Don't be afraid. Enough of that. Put your sword away. Let's read on, shall we? Verse 15. Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus. Because this disciple was known to the high priest, he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard. But Peter had to wait outside at the door. The other disciple, who was known to the high priest, came back, spoke to the servant girl on duty there, and brought Peter in. You aren't one of this man's disciples too, are you? She asked Peter. He replied, I am not. It was cold, and the servants and officials stood around a fire they had made to keep warm. Peter was also standing with them, warming himself. Let's jump to verse 31. And so they, oh, sorry, verse 25. <laughs> so they asked him, you aren't one of his disciples too, are you? He denied it, saying, I am not. 
one of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him, didn't I see you with him in the garden? Again, Peter denied it. And at that moment, a rooster began to crow. Now, if Peter's first fear response was fight, here we see flight or freeze. Peter must be devastated in that moment. On top of the fear for his safety, the loss of his rabbi, as far as Peter knows, at this moment, the last interaction he will ever have with Jesus was one where he was being rebuked. So there is regret and embarrassment happening as well. Maybe a fear of, have I messed everything up? A fear that he has lost the love of his Lord. So in a moment where he has the opportunity to tell others how wonderful the person they are about to execute is, how life-changing he is, how he is the son of God, like a deer in headlights, Peter lies and says he's never even met the guy. And if I'm honest with you, friends, sometimes what I convince myself is gentleness is actually my flight response in disguise. I'll give you an example. When I was at university, I had some roommates that were really challenging for me. They were big, big partiers. And I was this young little Christian who wanted to avoid confrontation at all costs. And so when the outdoor garbage cans were left outside my bedroom door, I just moved them back to their spot in the garden and said nothing. And when all of my shampoo was used up by others, I bought several more bottles so there would be plenty for the others, and I said nothing. And when a couple moved into the living room, walking through which was the only way to access the kitchen, I stopped using the kitchen and ate canned food in my bedroom for months and still said nothing. I convinced myself that my motivation for my behavior towards my roommates was one of love and patience, but it was not. It was fear. <laughs> Gentleness does not mean avoiding conflict. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul writes, Some of you have been arrogant, as if I were not coming to you, but I will come to you very soon, if the Lord is willing, and then I will find out not only how these arrogant people are talking, but what power they have, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. What do you prefer? Shall I come to you with a rod of discipline, or shall I come in love and with a gentle spirit? Paul here is letting the people of Corinth know that although they need to have some difficult talkings to and change their ways, Paul's attitude towards them is love and gentleness. Having tough talks gently. If my response to my roommates really was the way of true gentleness, it's no wonder why our culture tells us that success is won by firmness, single-mindedness, determination, because the alternative means being a doormat, an ineffectual pushover. Had I not been overwhelmed by my flight response in those days, had I set some boundaries and had some tough talks, but gently, I may have been able to actually love my roommates rather than just endure them. If that resonates with you, if you are prone to flight or freeze, Jesus says, I love you. Don't be afraid. Peace be with you. Go feed my sheep.
Now, whether we are more prone to fight, flight, or freeze, what is lying underneath many of our fears is a fear of powerlessness. It's instinct, isn't it? If you are or if you know a dog owner, you'll know that it's a common occurrence that dogs are much less aggressive around other dogs when they're not on their leash because they know that they can run away if they need to. On the leash, they lose some degree of power. How many of us as well have experienced greater occurrences of bullying when we were children at the hands of other children than we do now as adults? As we grow older, we gain power naturally, and so we don't have to result to dominating others in the same way to be perceived as powerful. We equate power with success and are looking for the strongest, the richest, the smartest, the prettiest to establish our hierarchy of value. Even within the church, we can see this. Who has the biggest congregation, or the most satellite campuses, or the sleekest social media? But with Jesus, we see a radical surrendering of the pursuit of power. I can't find just one verse to illustrate this because this was Jesus' whole life. He was born in a stable, immediately became a refugee. He gathered followers that were fishermen and tax collectors rather than people of political clout. He regularly hung out with people on the fringes of society. He rode donkeys rather than noble steeds. He washed his disciples' feet. He surrendered his life when he died on the cross. My friend Chris writes in his book, Ordinary Miracles, success and greatness in Jesus' kingdom starts with a downwards path, to wash people's feet, to love your enemies, and take the place of least honor. Jesus turns everything on its head. The last will be first, and the first will be last. If we imagine the fruit of gentleness as a banana, we must remove the peel of fear, we must we must also peel away at our own fingertips, clinging to our own power and sense of self-importance. Some of you might be familiar with Nicky Gumbel. He pastored a church in London called Holy Trinity Brompton for the last 36 years and is the main influence behind the Alpha Course, which has been an introduction to Christianity to millions around the world, including me. This weekend, Nikki is preaching his last sermon at HTB and as he is retiring from that role. And I saw a tribute to him on Facebook written by Pete Gregg that I'd like to read a part of to you. So Pete says, every Tuesday morning, I would lead a prayer meeting for HTB at 7 a.m. It was not a large gathering, mostly people in suits on their way to work and well-heeled retirees, but these were the quiet saints of the church. It was one of the least glamorous, lowest profile meetings we did, and two of its most faithful members were the Gumbles. Some of the busiest people I know, they were never there to lead, only always to pray. It would have been easy and so understandable if they'd ever said, look, Pete, we're with you in spirit, but we're awfully busy. Or, do you mind if we pray with you from home? Or, I'm afraid we have a meeting with the Archbishop of Bolivia. Or, unfortunately, the Bible in one year is keeping us occupied before breakfast on Tuesdays, and a million people are awaiting our thoughts. But instead, they were there, without fail, quietly praying for the church, for Alpha, for the nation, before slipping away out the side door to apologize to the Archbishop of Bolivia. P. 
He tells another story of a time when he was supposed to be preaching at the um, HDB carol service, but missed the whole thing because he was stuck in traffic. He says, when I eventually arrived, I was fraught, apoplectic, expecting to be fired. The carol service is the biggest event of the year. It's no small thing to preach. I'd messed up badly and publicly. But the minute Nikki saw me, his immediate, unprocessed reaction was surprising, to say the least. A colossal sigh of relief. Pete, he cried, you're not dead. The only reason he'd been able to imagine for missing the HTB carol service was premature death. He'd been grieving all the way through the first Noel, and so instead of telling me off, Nikki and Pips immediately ushered me away to the vicarage, utterly delighted for a roast chicken supper before the reprise. You want to know what holiness looks like? That's it right there, Pete says. I love these two examples. Here we see how the Gumbles demonstrate humility. They are never too important to spend time with God. They understand that all good gifts come from him. And then from that flows their gentleness. They are quick to find compassion, quick to forgive, quick to understand. We see here that practicing gentleness doesn't always produce efficiency. It doesn't produce perfection but it does make us more Christ-like. I wonder what that looks like for each of us today. If the Archbishop of Bolivia isn't waiting for us while we spend time in prayer, if like Jesus, there aren't people climbing trees to catch a glimpse of us that we can then invite over for dinner, how can we operate in our spaces and areas of influence with this kind of gentleness? I'm actually going to leave this question out there for all of us to chat over with God. But I do want to recap. So what have we learned? So it's clear that the way to be gentle is to just not be afraid. Simple. So stop being, afraid. Stop being fearful. Amen. Let's all go home. Just kidding. <laughs> time and time again, we see the phrase, don't be afraid in scripture. Let's dig a little deeper and look at how we can be less afraid and therefore more gentle. 1 John chapter 4 says, This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. Jump to verse 16. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. Perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. When I was 19, I made one of the biggest mistakes of my career, still to date. <laughs> I was working as a children's worker in Greater Manchester, doing door-to-door -door visits, and I had a file of names and addresses of about 100 local children, several of whom would be considered at risk and would have been being monitored to some degree by social services. I had that file of information, 
and I accidentally left it on the top of my car and drove away. <laughs> when I realized that all of this confidential information was now floating on the wind around the local area for anyone to pick up and read, I have never felt guilt, fear, panic like it. I was afraid that I was going to lose my job, the trust of the local families, and the respect of my co-workers and friends. I remember the feeling so clearly. But my co-workers responded with love. They reassured me, forgave me, and traipsed around the neighborhood with me until every missing page of the folder had been accounted for. Now, Let's consider the Pharisees in the Gospels. I chose this illustration because the one in the background looks like Russell Brand, don't you think? Um, <laughs> underneath the melody of Jesus healing the sick and forgiving sins, there is an undertone of disapproving mutters and grumbles from these religious leaders. You see, they were afraid that when Jesus was questioning their ways, their customs and their authority, they would lose the respect of the people. And so ultimately, they acted with violence and arranged for Jesus to be put to death. It is such a human trait to become so caught up in appearing to be righteous that we would reject and despise the very righteous one. We can be so afraid of getting it wrong as Christians that we forget that our redemption is not dependent on our own merit, but on God's grace. We are not God's employees. We don't have regular targets we need to meet to pass our probation. We're not a project of God where he watches our statistics on a graph and is disappointed if our trajectory is not always better. We are children of God. Galatians chapter four, verses six to seven says, and because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. And like Sue said in her talk on kindness, God enjoys us. He grabs our face and looks at us and says he loves us. He is the good shepherd, leading us beside still waters and quiet streams. He is the father, running down the garden path to greet his lost son. This is the God who, in 1 Kings 19, when Elijah was in the wilderness, exhausted from running for his life, God left him to nap and then brought him a cake. Can you think of a greater picture of a gentle parent than that? You're in trouble? Have a nap. I'll get you a snack and then we'll talk. Okay, so let's wrap up the story of Peter. Let's turn to John chapter 21. So by this point in the story, Jesus has been crucified. He died, but defeated death and was resurrected. He has made a few appearances to his followers. And this is the last account of such an appearance in the Gospel of John. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. 
So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you caught any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. And when they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it's the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him for he had taken it off and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish for they were not far from the shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you've just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153, but even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he says, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And then he said to him, follow me. Jesus was fully aware that Peter had messed up. And I'm sure Peter knew that Jesus knew that he had messed up. And I'm sure that Jesus knew that Peter knew that he knew that Peter had messed up. <laughs> if I had been Jesus in this instance, in my fearful, freezing nature, I would have been tempted to avoid the tough conversation and not say anything to Peter, instead leaving him in his guilt and anxiety. We also maybe couldn't blame Jesus if he'd had just a teeny tiny little gloat. Something along the lines of, I told you you would deny me. The least you can do is apologize. But not our gentle Jesus. Jesus lets Peter know that he has not been thrown out of the nest. He gives Peter the opportunity to run back into his arms, to affirm his love for Jesus, and to be restored to the path he was walking on. Peter hasn't earned his way back into Jesus's good books, Jesus comes down to him, down to the fishing boats, and restores him. So, we really are wrapping up now. The road to gentleness. God loves us and sent his son, Jesus, to die for our sins. So our relationship with God comes not from our own merit, but because of what Jesus has done. Therefore, we do not need to be afraid that God will reject us, abandon us, or stop loving us. 
We don't need to rely on our own power. We don't need to be haughty or throw our weight around. We don't need to hurt or hinder anyone else in the pursuit of our own safety. Like a bird in a hand, we can rest in God's love. We can trust him for all things. And as we rest in his love, we grow to see and know that every single other person is loved just as much by God as we are. And therefore, we are able to treat others gently, kindly, lovingly, because this is how God treats us. Can I invite the band up? Thank you. So just to close, um, I just want to say, your vulnerability can never be greater than God's gentleness. As you seek first God's kingdom and righteousness, there is no question you can ask, thought you can entertain, or confession you can make that will stop God from loving you. Your feet can never be so dirty blisters, warts, ingrown toenails, that Jesus will not wash them gently and dry them with his cloak. He will never give you a snake when you ask for a fish, a rock when you ask for an egg. He will never, ever, ever leave you when you ask him to stay. So don't be afraid. <laughs>